Hello, it is 11th of November 2018 and this is episode 83 of Scavengers Horde, a Stars podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. Um, and how has your week in Star Wars been, Rachel? <laughs> My week in Star Wars? Well, to be honest, there hasn't been much Star Wars. It's just been a week in the life. <laughs> because I've been very busy with various things. Um... God, I'm just trying to think. There's been lots of great photos of Adam Driver from this endless procession of events he's doing for award season. That's been very nice. <laughs> and tangentially related to Star Wars, so I can say that. Uh-huh. He's made like a couple of cryptic comments about Kylo in interviews, so we can get into that later. But other than that, it's just been really cool to see him celebrated for his performances in other movies, like Black Klansman and uh, Don Quixote. Yeah, for a minute I thought you were going to say it's been really nice to see his hair. It has been very nice to see his hair. <laughs> yeah, no, it has. He's in peak Kylo hair. Yeah, it looks very good. Um, yeah, and then another related thing is because I finished reading the assigned chapters of Mad Woman in the Attic a while ago, I'm actually now reading Rotherham Heights again for the first time in a long time. Which is nice, and the reason I'm rereading it is because one of the chapters I wanted us to read for the sake of reading that book is an analysis of Wuthering Heights. And I read it, and then I was like, hmm, I I can follow it, because obviously I know what happens in Wuthering Heights, and my memory of the plot is clear. But when you're reading an an analysis of something, it's very helpful to read what is being analysed. So I'm doing everything a bit backwards, but I am now reading Wuthering Heights, so Mm. hopefully I'll be able to bring that to the to the table when we discuss everything as well yeah i'm not gonna have time to do that before we record that episode but i have been reading hold back the stars which is um the book that's being adapted into a movie that will star john boyega and letitia wright Mm, as you know these star-crossed romeo and juliet lovers in space excellent yeah when i heard about that i was like oh yeah that sounds like that kind of thing and john boyega in a romance yes please yeah so you can't get better than that and it's the sort of role I've wanted for John as well for a long time because don't get me wrong like silly schlock like Pacific Rim is fine but I really do want to see something where he can be more like I don't know emotional and touchy-feely so I don't feel like I've really got that from John before in performances I know him mainly for his stuff in adventure slash action films and yeah Yeah. it's going to be useful to see a different side of him yeah just um you know, I think I'm about five chapters in. I'm really enjoying it. And I think he's really great for this character because um, he's very earnest and genuine in ways, but also has this really cheesy sense of humor, like in an annoying, ironic way that he saves these like moments to diffuse the awkwardness and in um, very charming. Um, so I can totally see him in this role. And yeah, it's going to have that romantic edge to it as well. Yeah. And it's very action-y as well, because they're out drifting in space and trying to save their lives. So I think I've seen it compared to Gravity um, in that aspect right. as well, which is an amazing movie that everyone should see. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited to learn more about that. Yeah. I obviously, they haven't started production yet because he's still filming, filming episode nine. But yeah. I really hope it's not one of those other projects that's announced and then like it just doesn't happen. So I feel like Daisy's had like five different projects announced 
over the last few years and none of them have started filming yet. And I know I'm just being impatient and that they're probably just waiting for her to wrap all the Star Wars stuff and then she'll be much more free with her schedule and everything. But it's just like, please happen, please happen, please happen. Because there's all these exciting sounding projects and I just need them to happen. Yeah, for Daisy, we're still waiting on seeing Ophelia and um, I don't know how far along they are with the one that she was filming with Tom Holland. Chaos Walking. Yeah, that's the one. I know that's troubled, shall oh, we say, okay. as in they've been doing lots of reshoots. Right. So I think it's become a bit of a mess, but that might be being a bit unkind. So we will have to see what the product turns out like. But yeah, I'm, I've kind of got reservations about that one. Yeah. I'll watch Daisy in anything. So oh yeah, I will definitely watch her. I think the projects patient. I was thinking about are the ones that they haven't even been filmed. So it's ones right. like Colma and um, A Woman of No Importance. All these exciting sounding projects. And right now they're just theoretical. Because mm-hmm. I trust and hope that Ophelia will eventually be- see the light of day. Especially now we've seen a trailer. And I think it will, even if it is just like on VOD somewhere. But the others, it's like, eh, come on, movement, movement. Yeah, I think that must be the case for a lot of actors, right? They get tied to projects that just don't pan out, but because we're following these actors because of the fandom, it's just kind of more obvious to us. Yeah, no, that happens a lot, I think. I think mm-hmm. there was um, like one very early film role that Adam was attached to, actually, where he was meant to be playing like this young lord, like in a costume drama. <laughs> and I think it was meant to be a bit farcical and humorous. But just the whole concept of that, like Adam Driver playing an upper-class Englishman, was extremely fascinating to me. So I'm sad that didn't happen. Oh, I don't remember that one. I know there was Annette that didn't seem to get off the ground. Yeah, that was long before Star Wars. Okay. Like, I think we're talking like 2012 or something really early. Oh, okay, I wasn't aware of that one. Yeah, I'll have to look into it later. Right, so now we've had a lovely discussion about the actors of Star Wars and their careers and the projects that they may or may not be making. I just wanted to reveal that we have a very special guest on this show and it's Christy, who is our composer friend. She's extremely talented and has the most incredible experiences. And yes, so she's joining us later for the spotlight, so stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, we're going to get to some news... And the first news item is that a spin-off series following Cassian Andor from Rogue One has been announced and Diego Luna is to star. Would you mind reading the excerpt from the announcement, Kirsty? Uh, sure. So this is from StarWars.com. Um, Disney chairman and CEO Bob Iger announced today that Lucasfilm is in development on a second Star Wars live-action series for Disney+, Plus, the company's new direct-to-consumer streaming service. The series, which will go into production next year, follows the adventures of rebel spy Cassian Andor during the formative years of the Rebellion and prior to the events of Rogue One. <laughs> prior, you say? Shocking. Shock! <laughs> Diego Luna will reprise the role of Andor. Going back to the Star Wars universe is very special for me, said Luna. I have so many memories of the great work we did together and the relationships I made throughout the journey. We have a fantastic adventure ahead of us and this new exciting format will give us the chance to explore this character more deeply. The rousing spy thriller will explore tales filled with espionage and daring missions to restore hope to a galaxy in the grip of a ruthless empire. A release date for the series has not yet been announced. Stay tuned to StarWars.com for the latest updates. Or wait for Bob Iger to spell the beans, you know, whatever happens (laughs) first. Just wait for the next earnings call. (laughs) 
I find it so funny that our fandom hinges on like financial announcements made to stockholders. I know, yeah. <laughs> Apparently like, that he was life? also he was making some comments about the financial success and critical success, obviously, of The Last Jedi, which people were enjoying too, because you know, forever Last Jedi discourse going on. It's like, haha, see, Disney were happy with it. Yeah. Which it's like Nelson from The Simpsons, you can go like <laughs> First, I'm going to say I'm not a big fan of the name Disney Plus. Um, <laughs> we'd heard rumours that it was going to be called Disney Play, and I think I actually prefer that and got used to calling it that, but I guess we'll just have to adjust back. Mm. But Disney Plus just kind of reminds me of Google Plus, which sucks. So Yeah, and it doesn't suggest a stream insight to me either, to be honest, which mm. might not be the best move, but I'm sure if it gets off the ground in a big way, then yeah, it will just be accepted. Exactly. So... Um, I was listening to the Slash On podcast and they had more details on... I'm I'm assuming that all of it came from the call, but I just haven't, like, read any notes from what Iger said in detail. But he was talking, apparently, about how they were going to structure and merchandise the platform because, obviously, the big, you know, the competitor out there is Netflix. And I don't know about you. Oh, actually, you don't have Netflix, do you? Um, I I don't, but I used to, so I know how Netflix works and everything. I use it a lot, but it's pretty badly organized and it can be hard to find what you want. And oftentimes it'll suggest things to you that you don't really have any interest in watching. Yeah. And you can like go through these categories on the homepage and it'll just be showing you the same things over and over again for supposedly different categories. But it's just, it's not great to navigate. It's not a great experience. Um, Yeah. So apparently the way they're going to um, merchandise this and have like the UX set up is that they'll have these different worlds. So it'll be like the Marvel world, the Star Wars world. Mm. I saw that and I was wondering if they're going to do a thing where you need to pay for each world separately. I could see them doing that. And to be honest, I wouldn't mind that because I wouldn't want to pay for the Marvel stuff, for example, you know? So if I could get like the Star Wars stuff and perhaps just the general Disney stuff cheap and then forget the other stuff, then I'm good you know i yeah i might have thought that that, but then with this cassian announcement apparently they also announced a loki series and i'm quite interested in that oh yeah that character so yeah no you're right yeah so then that would become problematic don't do that disney (laughs) that's a bad idea and you should not do it under any circumstances (laughs) we'll see yeah Um, but yeah i just liked the sound of that because that's the kind of thing that disney really excel at and always have right like presenting these worlds as exciting adventures and an experience in themselves. Yeah. Um, so yeah, was not expecting this announcement for a new show kind of so hot off the heels of hearing about The Mandalorian. Yeah. Um, no, which we didn't get random. anymore. Um, yeah, I guess there was no real lead up to it. If anything, I would have expected more details about The Mandalorian, like a date for that or something. But yeah. This is not slowing down in the way he kind of alluded to before (laughs) yeah i think when he said slow down he must have been very like selective and referring to films Mm. rather than tv because i think if anything it's heating up tv (laughs) yeah but i do like the idea if if what they're talking about here are like mini series so like maybe six to eight episodes something like that Mm. um i think it's a really good idea to kind of delve into these particular characters a bit more because I really liked Cassian in Rogue One. I liked a lot of those characters, but there just wasn't time to explore them. So you got these little hints at backstories and stuff, and you kind of felt like you had a grasp on them, but not really enough. 
Yeah. So I'm excited to see where they go with this. No, that makes sense. Like, I'm not excited for this, but like, I need to put caveats on that because I don't mean to be a complete downer. It's just that this sort of thing, quite like The Mandalorian, to be honest, it's just not an instant buy-in for me. As a premise, the idea of a series set in the early years of the Rebellion following Cassian Andor, that doesn't make me think, oh my god, I need to watch that. You know? like Oh, that's the... fair. Yeah, and it's the sort of thing where I'm absolutely going to give it a chance and I want to check it out and see what they do with it. But like, I, at the very least, I need to see a trailer and get a sense for the stories they're going to be telling before I get excited. I think that's totally fair. I think there's this real pressure in fandom sometimes to be like, oh, I can't wait for this thing that I literally just heard about but have no details on. It's like, yeah. oh no, I'm I'm excited to see what they do with it and maybe it'll be great, but obviously we don't know until we see anything. Yeah. So it's just like, oh yeah, that sounds like it could be cool. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's fine. And it's also a question of, I think fandom can hit critical mass and there's just so much Star Wars that you kind of have to be selective about those parts of Star Wars that you're actually deeply invested in. Because it's just literally impossible to be equally invested in every single segment of Star Wars, you know, when you're talking about the cartoons and the films and the books and the comics and the Lego shorts and on and on and on. And yeah, there just reaches a point where you need to say, no, I'm drawing a line. And for me, that doesn't mean like a hard and fast line as in I'm only ever going to watch the films and I'm going to ignore everything else. That's not true. And that's not my approach to things. It's just like for films, I'm always going to be there on the first day. But the other stuff, it's going to be, okay, show me what you've got. Sure. And I think that's how it's going to work for most people. I think Mm. for most of the general audience, the films will still be number one and probably what people only consume. And yeah. then there's all this other stuff for people who are more interested. Yeah. Um, so when I heard about this, I was like, oh, you know what? Since we got a Han and Chewie's first meeting in Solo, maybe they'll, they'll show Cassie and meeting K2SO. And then I, I was listening to Blue Harvest and they said that actually we've already seen that um, Cassie and, and K2SO meet in the comic series that came out after Rogue One. Oh, so interesting. there's all this stuff that already is there in some form in canon that we're just not aware of if we don't consume it all. And it is, like you say, impossible to consume it all. Yeah. Um, and there should never be a requirement for that. It doesn't make anyone more or less of a fan. So mm. I think it's just fine to sit back and be like, okay, I'll just see where they go with this and keep an open mind. Yeah. And it's going to be interesting to see if they reach a point where, I don't know, they're doing this Cassian series and perhaps a writer for that series has a really brilliant idea for how they would like Cassian and K2SO to meet for the first time. Mm. And are they then going to stop that person telling that story because a version of that has already been told in the comics? You know, it's a tricky situation. I doubt they would, to be honest, because if they really did have a great idea that would make fantastic television, I think Pablo Hidalgo said before on Twitter that like, whatever the, the, the case is with books and comics and that, what you see on screen takes precedence. Yeah. So, you know, we've had discrepancies with, like, the novelizations and stuff just because practically if the authors are writing that as a film is being shot and then things change or whatever or they, they alter something during the editing process, um, that stuff has to take precedence. I mean, it's all something of a moot point because none of it's real. <laughs> but, yeah. But it can be very important to some fans. So, yeah, like, if they came up with an amazing idea, I'm sure they'd be like, yeah, go for it and then we'll figure out how to explain that later. Yeah, that makes sense. 
Out of I mean, I, all, sorry, you finish. Oh, I was just going to say I really like Diego Luna as a, an actor, um, mm-hmm. and I, I know that the opinion on Cassian was mixed, which makes sense because he's something of a morally great character, even though he's presented as the hero or the male lead hero of um, Rogue One. Mm. Um, but I'm really excited for him to explore this role further because he's incredibly talented and a really lovely person, it seems like, in interviews. Yeah. He was he was the highlight of the Rogue One promotional tour for me. He was yeah. just so enthusiastic. Yeah, and he's a huge Star Wars fan, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Like, didn't he make some, like, really, like, bizarre joke about Jabba the Hutt or something? I don't know if he was joking. <laughs> <laughs> what was it again? I can't remember. He's fascinated by Jabba and, like... <laughs> He said something like, the texture of Jabba is something I want to discover. (laughs) (laughs) And then obviously people went there with the memes and the fic and stuff. Oh, that's amazing. (laughs) Like, maybe they need to, like, have an episode where, like, Cassian becomes, like, his hut slave. (laughs) Exactly. Wow. Yeah, that that would be a brave new world. I'll certainly be open to that. (laughs) Um, Quick question... Out of all the characters in the Star Wars story films, that is to say Rogue One and Solo, like thinking of all those characters, which one would you most want to see a spin-out TV series about? Because they're obviously looking at this as a serious prospect and considering various ideas. Um, I Well, we talked before about the idea that Solo in itself could have worked potentially better as a miniseries. Yeah. Um, whether that was following Han or Lando or even Kira. Mm. So I think there's all sorts of potential there. Yeah. Um, and Fist Ness is another character who we got so little of, but people have really attached themselves to her because her design is so iconic and, you know, it just, there was this immediate presence in the movie, even though we saw such little of her in terms of actual screen time. Yeah. So there are all, all these avenues they can take. Um, but yeah, I I think really when it comes down to it, I think anything can be made into compelling television. Yeah. Um, whether or not you're like super attached to someone as a character in the movie you first see them in, you can then grow to really love them. Yeah. Like for example, I am not super attached to Poe Dameron in The Force Awakens, but as they develop the character, I have you know become more of a fan of him in The Last Jedi and Star Wars Resistance. Yeah. So, which is awesome. Never say never. Exactly. So I was going to say for me, if they announced a Kira series of Amelia Clark, which I don't think would happen because Amelia Clark would demand monstrous amounts of money. <laughs> um I would just be so there. I would be so so excited. <laughs> oh my god. I think there's I there is that. a lot of potential for that character because there are obviously these huge chunks of time where Han was not privy to anything that was happening with her yeah. and had this like idealized version of her in his head. Yeah. So it'd be cool to actually see the reality of that situation. Yeah. I think that's it. I just feel like that's a real really like genuinely unexplored nook in the galaxy in that time period. Because while I do think that there's been a hell of a lot of content in that period between Revenge of the Sith and A New Hope, I, I think there are still new areas to mine, even though I'm more excited with stories that happen after Return of the Jedi. Hmm. So yeah. right now I'd say I'm more invested in The Mandalorian than I am for the Cassian series for that reason. Because I feel like The Mandalorian will be going slightly more into unknown territory, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's true for me too. There just seems to be more there to to work with. Um, yeah. So the Cassian saga 
series, whatever, seems like it will be like another play on the, you know, an, a different perspective on the original trilogy. So like we were discussing Lost Stars in the last episode, that kind of thing. Yeah. Where it can be a different perspective and angle and you can include all of this intriguing stuff if you want it. You could even have like a young Leia in there as a cameo yeah. or something like that. Because exactly. if he's joining the Rebellion, the Organas and Mon Mothma and all that, they're obviously there. They're central figures. So Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think there's a lot of potential, but like you, I'm probably more invested at this point in The Mandalorian, even though there's still so much we don't know about that show too. Exactly. I think Celebration will reveal a lot about both projects. Mm-hmm. At least that's what I hope for. Right, well, so we had quite a meaty discussion about that, but it is quite big news, so it makes sense. Um, this next topic will be much, much quicker, <laughs> because it's literally a sentence. But yeah, Adam Driver was interviewed by Vulture magazine. It's a really fantastic like piece generally, so I'd strongly recommend reading it just because it's very well written. It's a really well-conducted interview with some really incisive, interesting questions that aren't stupid questions either. You know, celebrities often get asked really dumb shit. Um, and yeah, they managed to sneak in a Star Wars question. Um, and even though Adam couldn't really answer for obvious reasons, he did still answer in an interesting way. So I'll read it. What's interesting to you about playing Kylo Ren? That's hard to say because we're working towards something in particular with that character. I don't want to give anything away. So obviously, <laughs> as Star Wars fans, we are going to dissect the answer that doesn't want to give anything away. <laughs> of course, says nothing Adam. of substance. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love it if he just literally said nothing and the author of the interview had to literally just put in square brackets, driver says nothing, <laughs> intensely. <laughs> I could totally picture Adam doing that, actually. Yeah, um, and people would probably still read into that. They'd be like, oh, that must mean this for the character. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. I do find this interesting in that instead of pointing towards something, he could have very easily just said, oh, the interesting part was when he did this thing in The Force Awakens or when he did this in The Last Jedi. Like He could have talked about Kylo killing Snoke or killing Han or whatever. Yeah. But he's he's very much, and it makes sense because they're in the middle of filming episode nine, but he's yes. thinking about the future trajectory of the character is saying potentially that that's what he finds most interesting. Yes. Exactly. So I remember in the run-up to The Last Jedi when Adam has been interviewed about that film, he was talking about how the character was introduced to him like as this exercise in peeling away layers and gradually mm-hmm. revealing the true person underneath. And yeah, this will sound a bit idiotic, but in on the broadest level, this quote just says to me that there are more layers to be stripped back and that the character still has a lot of growing to do. He's still on a journey. So I think it's clear that Kylo Ren, Supreme Leader of the First Order, is not the final destination for that character. Yeah. Again, which is stuff that we could easily deduce from the story. He's not giving anything away, but yeah, it's just more anticipation for Nine, I guess. Exactly. And some people do seem to think that that's just it for the character now. And I know well, you and I don't think this, and I know we like. I'm guessing that most of our listeners don't think that either, so yeah, (laughs) yeah, no, you'd think so. Like we were very much like, yeah, we're we're preaching to the converted. Um, But yeah, no, it's just interesting to me how there are so many people who look at those final scenes 
And I like, yep, that's the end of the road for him. There's no coming back. He is now fully evil. Especially with the whole puppy dog eyes moment. It's like, that that moment him. gets overlooked, I think. Because I've seen a lot of people, even film critics, they'll talk about how Kylo seems beyond redemption at the end because he's in such a blind rage and he's swearing vengeance on Rey and Luke and everyone in the resistance and everything. But actually, yeah, like you say, that last shot of him kneeling on the ground, looking up at Rey and then looking down to the dice when she disappears and then they disappear in his hand and he bows his head in defeat and presumably regret. Um, that's the last time we see him. And that yeah. is obviously a very conscious choice from Ryan Johnson. Yes. That's not a villain in a victorious moment. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm so, just yeah. trying to imagine what Kylo Ren in victorious moment would look like. Literally just him like throwing his head back and going whoa yeah it would be more akin to like a palpatine moment yeah. it's it's not what we see um so is it bad that i kind of wish that kylo could have that because like poor guy he's just so unhappy the whole time like just like well yeah i mean you do joy. you do want him to be happy but hopefully we we get to see that in nine and a <laughs> more light side incarnation yeah not like the happy Renfrew. <laughs> But that's the thing. I think I, I think it's very interesting the depiction of the dark side in the sequel trilogy because Snoke isn't particularly like he's not he's not really like a Palpatine gleeful maniacal figure either. He's more yes. calculating and because they're still trying to take over, right? They're not like sat pretty feeling super successful yet because he still feels like he has to take down Luke Skywalker. Yeah. But yeah, for for Kylo it's a very interesting depiction of the the dark side which feels more true in a way that you do get that agony and conflict because that's not the right place to be yeah so it's very clearly presented as something that it should not be the case like we should not have the son of han and leia on the dark side being miserable and alone and yeah lashing out at people he cares about so yeah no exactly it's like in the um original trilogy like all the dark side all the dark side characters they are all pretty flat you know like and i even say that about darth vader to be honest because obviously i know darth vader has that redemption arc and he obviously has those feelings for his son but it's quite unambiguous you know in that when he's like saying join me son and together we will rule it's always completely crystal clear in that moment that he's saying that with very bad intentions you know whereas the whole point of the kylo stuff in the last jedi is when he makes offers to Ray. Like, is he offering that on an individual level, on a personal level, or is he offering that on some like grander intergalactic scale that implies like world domination? And obviously, that's what he does at the very end because he's explicit with it. As in, together we'll rule the galaxy. But like in the moments leading that and proceeding, leading up to that, it's different. And there's always that tension where you're not sure how to interpret it. And mm -hmm. I love that ambiguity because yeah, it, adds, it gives it something knew that it didn't have before in terms of the depth yeah i mean in terms of like when you get that shift in empire of him revealing that he is luke's father it's remarkable to me always whenever i watch it that luke goes pretty instantly from no to father <laughs> it's like oh wow you really came around to the idea <laughs> you mean like when he's sat in the falcon and he's yeah. like here in vader yeah yeah, it's like, oh wow, you really accepted that pretty quickly. It's just, it's funny in hindsight because we know that historically, like after Empire came out and they had those years of speculation, people did not want to accept that that was 
what was truly going on in the story it had to be that vader was lying yes so yeah you do have that personal attachment for vader but obviously it's still at war with him wanting to overthrow his master and be alongside his son which i guess is touching in its own way (laughs) what's the father and son business oh precious (laughs) oh dear absolutely precious um right okay and then the next thing we want to talk about is that Richard E. Grant has talked about joining Star Wars Episode Nine on the Happy, Sad, Confused podcast. And we have a transcript for this from Slimo. I don't for a moment think we want to read out the entire transcript because it's very long. Um, but yeah, could you basically summarise the most interesting things that Grant said, Kirsty? Uh, I'll try. So he's basically talking about the audition process and then going to meet JJ and Daisy was with him when he went mm-hmm. to meet him. So that's that's encouraged a lot of speculation because it's like, oh, well, is he going to share screen time with Ray? That sort of thing. Um, but basically, once again, every time the Richard E. Grant talks about it, you just really get this sense that he feels so grateful, excited and honoured to be a part of Star Wars. Yeah. Um, which is always lovely to see. Yeah. Um, so yeah he just seems super into the idea and i think oh here it is he says um he's asked like you didn't even know you were up for a star wars movie so like what did they give you um and he says for the audition he was sent a 10 page generic sort of i think it was an interrogation scene clearly from a 1940s british b picture because the references were not star wars and the (laughs) language was something that my grandfather would have spoken in and I thought, you know, the free contrasting scenes that you were supposed to show as much versatility as you could muster in a self-taping situation. So I guess it tells us something in that he was asked to do this interrogation scene, but then he also goes on to say that he wanted to provide lots of different things so that he could show that he could do all sorts of things with whatever character they wanted him to play. Yes. Um, so it's hard to deduce anything solid from that, but I guess that's what we're going to try and do, because... <laughs> That's our job. Fandoms about, yeah. Read into everything. Yeah, like obviously the like most basic conclusion you'd reach from this is, oh, he's playing a first order officer, which is a reasonable assumption based on the idea of him reading that sort of interrogation script. Of course, that, like you say, is not necessarily the case. It sounds like that wasn't the only thing he was asked to read from, but. He he just looks so good in that, you know? Like, you can just see it so vividly. Um, so, yeah. I kind of hope he is playing a baddie, because I think Richard E. Grant has so much fun with baddies as well. And I feel bad for saying that, so I know he's versatile, and I know he can do so much more. But, yeah. He's very versatile. He's amazing with comedy as well. Yeah. So, he could really do anything. So, yeah. I'm, I'm very intrigued to see what they do, but I'm also... Like I've had a few asks on Tumblr from people asking me to speculate on him and I, I just don't... This time around, I guess I was more into it for episode 8, but episode 9, I'm just kind of content to sit back and watch stuff roll in. Mm. Um, and they'll tell us when they're good and ready. So, um, yeah, they, they could do anything with him. And I know that Matt Smith's been attached to lots of rumours about Palpatine returning. <laughs> Not touching those. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it kind of makes me think, oh, such silly nonsense um, with the Matt Smith rumours. So yeah, best to avoid those. Um, but yeah, with Richard E. Grant, I actually saw um, Nutcracker in the Four Realms <laughs> a, oh, yeah. few day- a few days ago. And Richard E. Grant features in that film. And 
God, it looks like such the most. It looks like the most thankless part imaginable, because <laughs> he's lit playing like the king of this ice realm, and he has his face painted blue, and he's wearing like this bizarre. Oh my God, Thrawn confirmed. Yeah. Oh God, Thrawn. <laughs> Perfect. I need casting. to see that in YouTube video edits. <laughs> like, but seriously, let me finish, Kirsty. So it gets Sorry. better. Um, so in the film, he wears this like headdress with like icicles sprouting from it like he's a freaking like ice hedgehog or something (laughs) and it's like face is almost completely obscured and you just look at him and you're like god you poor sod like don't get me wrong like he still gives it everything that you possibly could give a role like that but i was like oh man i hope they don't bury him under too much in star wars (laughs) i want to see that it's richard e grant okay yeah richard e grant is thrown (laughs) <laughs> oh no! Please, God! I just they don't just gave want them it. the makeup early. They just need to add the red contacts, and oh, we're there. No, I feel like we swapped roles. I'm usually the one like throwing out all these silly ideas, and then you're like, "Oh, Rachel, no!" Yeah, just to be clear, I do not expect him to be thrown, nor do I want him to be thrown. But yeah, just to bring it back down to earth a minute. Um. Yeah, and it's interesting that Daisy was there. Like, maybe she was just there for kicks. Maybe she's a big Richard E. Grant fan. Just wanted to say hello. Yeah, but... I mean, if she's a Spice World fan, I I would want oh, to yeah. meet Richard E. Grant. You know? There's... Oh God, I forgot who was in Spice World. That's oh my God. Yeah. Who does he play in Spice World again? Remind the me. manager. Oh. F- <laughs> <laughs> this is the perfect excuse to watch Spice World again. Right, and then the final news thing we want to talk about is that. People have been piecing together various actors' whereabouts on the production of episode 9, mainly thanks to John Baker's Instagram posts, because he's very prolific, um, shall we say. Um, yeah, and I gather there's been lots of table tennis being played. Is that correct, Kirsty? Yeah, so we knew this from The Last Jedi, but while they were filming that, they were kind of playing table tennis together. It's obviously very important news. I know everyone's very interested in this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> All the actors are kind of playing table tennis between takes and that, but uh, John Boyega has confirmed they are doing that again on the set of episode nine, and Adam Driver is winning for keeping mm-hmm. track of who's winning the most games. Nice. Again, very important. Yeah. And a fan asked him if we could get like a photo of or a video of them playing, and he said he would get back to them. So fingers crossed that John comes through with the goods. Mm-hmm. And I think also he had like an Instagram story that implied they'd they'd wrapped up something big in Jordan because he had like a a thing with fireworks that was like we smashed it, <laughs> and and then a fan saw JJ and Oscar um, going through the visa control or border whatever you call it, but you said it was to get back into Jordan. Yeah, apparently sure. someone asked the person who put up the selfie with JJ. And they said that as far as they were concerned, JJ and Oscar were entering the country, not leaving it. Okay. Which is interesting. So that certainly suggests that filming in Jordan continues. And that's notable since it's a very, very long shoot. Because I think they've been there for at least three weeks already. And that's a long time for a location shoot. There's Mm -hmm. like small independent films where the entirety of the film is done in three weeks. Yeah. So they're there for a long time. We haven't had anything solid about Daisy being there yet, right? 
No, there was something very early when we first had info on the Jordan filming where someone said they thought they saw Daisy Ridley on a camel <laughs> being okay. given a tour. This is also surreal. But that could have been anyone. Yeah, exactly. And it was all very much I thought and yeah. I guessed. I think that there was a sighting of her in Dubai as well. So like, in the Middle East, obviously not Jordan. Um which implies she's kind of been around, but who knows how much she's been filming. She's very elusive. Right, and we haven't had anything on Kelly either, so potentially the whole Jordan sequence is just Finn and Poe together. Potentially, yeah. And obviously Adam hasn't been filming Star Wars for at least the last like week and a half or something because mm-hmm. he's been doing all these events to promote his awards chances, basically. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Hopefully it'll pay off and we'll get Oscar nominee Adam Driver. That'll be exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so like the only thing we can reasonably conclude from this is that whatever planet Jordan is being used to represent, it will be very important to the plot because you don't spend that long filming in one place for it to be something insignificant. It's clearly going to be a big scene. So even if it's not a big screen in terms of screen time, ultimately, because sometimes it takes a very long time to film short sequences just because they're very complex and intricate. So it could be relatively brief in terms of screen time, but I would bet on it being very significant and important. Mm-hmm. But, I saw some people yeah. speculating recently that instead of what we've all been kind of assuming, either Jakku or potentially Jeddah, the Jordan location could be Geonosis. Ooh. Yeah, didn't um, John do something that kind of yeah. vaguely hinted at that as well? What did he do? I think there was something related to Battlefront. Okay. Um, that was like Geonosis on on there. And he like quote tweeted it with the eye emoji. Um, <laughs> as well, if he that knows what means he's anything. Doing. Yeah. He's encouraging people to speculate, but it could be nothing to do with that. Because he was also, I think they've just been playing Battlefront together, him and Oscar. Which, if I was a character in a video game, I would totally do that too. Because <laughs> he was asking EA on Twitter if they could get Poe as like a, a playable hero in the main section of Battlefront. Do we know if John is playing as Finn? Uh, I don't think we've seen video of that. We've seen them playing other games together, but not Battlefront. Right. Yeah, man. I would love a Let's Play of John Boyega playing Battlefront. That'd be amazing. I would guess that he would play as Kylo because he's a big Kylo fan. Yeah, I could see that. I'd like to see him do Ray as well. <laughs> Especially if he did the voice. Oh, yeah, that would be good. It's like, oh, I say. Oh. Sorry, Daisy. Let him have like his British accent. Yeah, exactly. Set him free. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, right. They we're so. really scraping the barrel with this news section. <laughs> yeah, we are. Seriously, we haven't done like a news section in, what, three weeks? And this is the best we can come up with. <laughs> Yeah, it's they're really guarding things closely. Remember way back when StarWars.com promised that we would get updates from JJ? <laughs> and then we lies, found like the one lies. photo. Oh dear. Oh my lord, my lord. Um, right, okay. So then we are now going to move on to a discussion of episodes 5, 6 and 7 of Star Wars Resistance. And we're going to take this episode by episode and just discuss our thoughts each time. So yeah, with the High Tower, would you briefly like to summarise what happens, Kirsty? You don't necessarily need to read the whole synopsis that we have there. It can just be like a general thing of this is the broad strokes. Sure. So it's when we first get to meet Hype Phazon, 
Mm -hmm. We see more of his relationship with Tam and like hints at what might have happened there with them. Mm -hmm. And it's Kaz basically getting access to the tower, which has been kind of where things have been leading for a couple of episodes, right? It's been like seen as the central hub of everything that happens on the Colossus. Yeah. So it's very exciting for him to sneak in there and the First Order arrive. So he's like, oh, going into spy mode. But it's yeah. not as easy as he thinks it's going to be. And shenanigans occur. And <laughs> yes. Yeah. He gets into a lot of trouble and it's very amusing. Um, yeah. And we get really wonderful, adorable interactions between him and Tora and him trying to escape. Um, I noticed that Yigo was mysteriously absent from this episode. Yeah. He's the spy. Yeah, Calling obviously. It. Yeah. <laughs> Confirmed. <laughs> and we just get we get more of um, Captain Dozer as well, who is fast becoming a very interesting character to me. Because yeah. Because you never quite know what's going on with him. Because he seems to be self-interested, but not super selfishly, just like his loyalties lie with the Colossus and protecting its people. And he's probably playing the Resistance and the First Order off each other for his own gain. Yeah. Um, which might be the case for a lot of people in the galaxy at this point, to be honest. Yeah. No, he has his own little kingdom and the priorities and needs of that kingdom are what he focuses on, basically. Mm-hmm. And we also get Major Von Reg visiting. Um, so this is when things seem to get really real with like the First Order. It's been a few weeks because obviously we had to take some time off, but it feels like a lot's happened with kind of raising the stakes of uh, the series and yeah. Kaz becoming like more directly involved with what's going on with the First Order. Yeah. No, the peril definitely felt very real, which I appreciated. And yeah, I think it was mostly the character interactions and all that character building work that I appreciated the most in this episode. Like, I felt like we got much more out of Tam, which I appreciated because, mm -hmm. for, like, for the first four episodes, she's just there to be like, oh, Kaz, you're so stupid. Kaz, you can't do anything. Kaz, I hate you. Uh, obviously, that's oversimplification. But she's just always like complaining and moaning about him and stuff. Justifiably, she's pretty dumb. But like, I wanted to see more from her and see what sort of character she was beyond that. And I felt like we've really got that here because we see her in this more vulnerable state. Mm -hmm. And like you say, there's obviously the history between her and Hyperphazon. And like my impression of what happened is, well, I think some of this is spelled out explicitly, but it's been a week or two since I saw it. So it's not fresh in my mind. But my impression is that they were both racers, but then Hype became more successful than she was. And he just kind of left her in the dirt, kind of, metaphorically speaking, anyway. And perhaps there was some inciting incident that meant he had a big head start on her and then that disadvantaged her and they've never been able to recover since then. Is that right, Kirsty? You might be clearer for you. That's what it seems like, that she feels like he got too big for his boots. And um, he almost seems kind of secretly insecure and wanting to impress her. Yeah. But then doesn't realise that it's like backfiring and making her feel like he's even more arrogant than before. <laughs> um, <clears throat> it's quite endearing. Um, yeah. I'm sure everyone has their own perception of it because I saw some people calling him a bit of an asshole. And there is that element to it. Yeah. But I don't think that's like all that there is i think there's been this horrible misunderstanding between people and i there is this like debate going on as to whether they were friends or whether it was more of a romantic relationship that went sour but she does emphasize several times that they're friends like she yeah. uses friend and friendship a lot 
Yeah. So I, I, I don't know. We'll see where that goes. Um, it's just, yeah, like you say, there's more to Tam here with this episode that she's confiding in Kaz, mm. which is new because she's never really shown that vulnerability before. So she yeah. obviously trusts Kaz to some extent. Like she's saying, this really upset me and I'm not over it. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it yeah you get a deeper look at exactly. this character who's not the main event but like is obviously there and very important to Kaz's time on the Colossus so yeah and I think they established lots of mysteries that I presume are gonna pay off later so there's that whole mystery about like Hype's dynamic with the First Order yeah. and the fact he seems to want no part in it yeah and he seems reluctant to explain why um, yeah he says at first when they're in the the bar he says dozer and i have an understanding and then it comes up again later and kaz asked him directly and he just ignores him <laughs> starts talking to tam probably yeah. because he's more interested in talking to tam and like reconciling their friendship but yeah also yeah there's probably something that he doesn't really want to share yeah i've seen with the um shipping with tora and kaz that it's 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 kind of weird because when you look at it, it is clearly very shippable with like the whole breaking into her bedroom inadvertently and her covering for him and that sort of thing. And she obviously like alludes to, oh, I think you've got the wrong idea about my intentions and that sort of thing. But I think people pointed out that Toro is only 15, mm-hmm. <laughs> whereas Kaz is meant to be in his early 20s, right. which, yeah, I don't think they'd go there. <laughs> no, I, I think that's kind of what they're commenting on almost. Yeah, like she touches his face and it's very like oh it's kind of cute because she's younger than him but she's very much like oh Kaz sweetie <laughs> baby doll <laughs> but yeah I love that look at her bedroom because we get very I, I don't know it seems like in a, in a while I know we got like Ray's uh, home Hovel. yeah at the start <laughs> of The Force Awakens but this is a very different look at teenager's bedroom yes um, and it's just cool to get those like more humanising elements domestic yeah exactly situations in star wars you also get the real sense of tor as this sort of like princess in the tower yeah she has all of these toys and posters and it's really cool yeah and obviously she's not like like defenseless so like oh you need to save me or anything like that but i think we know that she's very overprotected by her father and i think that comes through the way she seems to be very much sealed away from everyone and like shut out and I imagine she's going to go on an arc where she has to fight for more independence for herself mm-hmm. and that we're probably going to see her like integrate more in terms of the general melee of the Colossus because yeah like and to be honest even like all the um like aces they all seem so separate they literally just hang out in the tower <laughs> and they're kind of like yep we're good here mm-hmm. it's like come yeah. on guys <laughs> Come down yeah, and mingle with the common folk. Very comfortable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I feel, I feel like it might be some subtle commentary on the class system. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear me. Uh, yeah, so is there anything else you want to say about the High Tower? Um, I do think it's interesting that like the First Order are being very sneaky because we saw earlier that they kind of created this problem of the pirates for mm. Doza. And yeah. then now in this episode, Von Red comes to visit him and he's like, oh, you're clearly not able to handle the situation, so why don't you just let us help out? <laughs> it's like, that's a problem that you have created for him, you little bugger. Yeah. Like, oh, you scamp. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, it's very um, like they're simple tactics, yet they're effective. So they create problems. It's like I don't know. It's like starting like a bug infestation and then starting a bug killing solution, and then going around to sell it to the people who you've just infested with bugs. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we'll just replace bugs with pirates, and <laughs> there you are. Um, but yeah, like again, I think it's what we were saying the last time we had a conversation about resistance, where it's the first order finding a foothold in like a variety of smaller ways mm-hmm. like and then using those footholds to like intimidate people and to crank up their power which is like a neat way to see it all working on a micro level mm-hmm. yeah very crafty exactly one of my favorite parts of the episode is just how funny it is to see kaz sneaking around yes the animation style is just so funny like just jumping around like almost falling off things and then it cuts to like Niku and the other people in the bar having bets on when how long he's gonna last and whether he managed to escape yeah that was some great gallows humor actually i appreciated that yeah someone on twitter compared it to i don't know if you've seen emperor's new groove i watched it recently (laughs) no i haven't someone posted a gif of the character kronk in that like so sneaking around like oh, trying not to get caught and i was like that's exactly what it's like it's so funny nail on head i'm sure they yeah. probably have seen that animation it was probably some an influence on some level yeah kaz is just so funny he's like he's fast becoming one of my favorite star wars characters period because yeah i know i know some people have problems with his like incompetency and don't understand how he can be like that at his age and like his level of success with being a pilot and whatever but I'm just not thinking about that stuff too much. Like, yeah, it's not that exactly. Deep. And and I also don't think he's that incompetent. I think we've seen much more incompetent characters in Star Wars, to be honest. He's just very naive, and I think that comes from his sheltered background. Yeah. So that's probably something that he has in common with Tora, actually. That his father is like, "Hey, I've given you all of these opportunities, and you still haven't quite found your way." But this is him finding his way. He's figuring things out for himself, which is new for him. So. Yeah, exactly. He's growing on his own, like, coming-of-age story. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And then the next episode we want to talk about is The Children from Tahar, which is a biggie. Um, Yeah, so in this story, basically, um, (laughs) Kaz manages to damage uh, parts that Tam needs. And so she's basically like, you need to replace it! And so then, conveniently, Kaz sees that there's a bounty out for two missing children. And he's like, okay, then I'll find the kids and then get a lot of money and then everyone will be happy. But then it turns out that the kids, they're not being searched for in a wholesome way. In fact, the First Order is after them. And yeah, there's basically a big, big mystery behind what the kids are running from and the circumstances in which they were forced to run. Um, and the circumstance, I'm afraid to say, was caused by Kylo Ren. I am shocked that Kylo Ren has apparently done something wrong. He He's never done anything wrong, not on a single day of his life. Come no, on. I, I just, I can't believe it that no. despite e- the now, first ever scene that we saw him in, he destroyed a village, but this has just shook me to my very core and I have to understand. <laughs> New information! <laughs> oh, yeah dear. no it's the sort of thing where 
we all know, or at least should know, come on, like that this is the sort of bad shit that Kylo has been getting up to prior to He literally to the was Awakens. doing this when we first saw him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It shouldn't be surprising. And in The Force Awakens, it's pretty clear that it's not his first rodeo. <laughs> you know, he's not like filled with doubt and conflict. It's like, yeah, just do it. <laughs> he needs the map, right? So, sorry? <laughs> He needs the map, so... <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's pretty, like, Sorry, single... kids. <laughs> He's single-minded. I, oh, God, this feels so dark because we're talking about massacres. Um, but yeah, Kylo Ren does bad shit. That includes Spoilers. overseeing the murder of villagers. It is really bad. And I'm not trying to of course cover it is. up the fact it's really bad. <laughs> but again, it's stuff we already knew. And anyone who's a fan of the character, this is part of the deal. Like, is something that you can't really erase from his history is about contextualising the fact that he did all this terrible, terrible shit with the other things we know about this character and what the character goes on to do and how the character behaves in the films and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I, I just say that because I saw some people freaking out a bit when this came out. It's like, really, guys? It reminded me a bit of, um, what was it called? Was it Ashgate? Oh. Yeah. Like, it's not that bad. I don't think it's as bad as Ashgate was, because that was just ridiculous. Um, but that was, like, some like, offhand comment from J.J. Abrams saying that, like, Kylo kept the ashes of his enemies in, like, his room or something. That's so metal. Yeah, so metal. Um, and for some people, that was the final straw, and that meant... Kylo could not possibly be rooted for or have any sympathetic undertones. I actually uh, love that. That's like some proper Hades god of death shit. <laughs> yes, exactly. But anyway, so so you saw it from like we're talking about fan reactions that we've noticed, right? So I actually got quite an opposite perception of fandom because you got like people presumably on like the redemption side of it going, "Oh no, if they're showing him doing this, that's bad news for us." Yeah. And I got it from people who were like oh look see they're showing him as a murderer just as we all knew but some people seem to have forgotten <laughs> oh like, yeah i've seen that too yeah maybe we could all calm down and just maybe watch the force awakens again because yeah it showed him doing this exact kind of thing <laughs> he was it's trying to new... find uncle luke to off him <laughs> it's understandable he wanted his revenge because he thinks that luke was trying to kill him in his sleep so an eye for an eye yeah. Although that is the interesting question, isn't it? Because the episode is very, very deliberately careful not to reveal what Kylo and the First Order were doing there. Yeah. Because the children don't know. So they can't tell Kaz and the others. They're just like, these people came and they killed everyone and they were really sad. So that's like the full extent of the insight we have. That and the mm. fact that the First Order really want to cover it up that they've been doing exactly. this. Exactly. So that's but, they're trying to find these children because they're the witnesses to this. Yeah. They're obviously trying to keep things on the lowdown. Yeah. Um, exactly. It's not that the children have something they want. It's just that they're afraid about what the children might reveal. And again, that makes complete sense because you don't want people knowing that you're committing war crimes because that's going to attract undesirable attention (laughs) (laughs) um yeah but it's interesting because kylo could have been there for any number of reasons i think naturally our thought goes to finding the map to skywalker which i think is very plausible it's possible that the people on tahar followed like a false religion like the people did in the village that law santeca lived in 
like and they could have feasibly had that information so that could have been why he went there or it could be some completely unrelated mission where they were like exploiting the planet for resources or something like with like what happened with Rose and Page's planet because we know the First Order completely decimated that. Sure. I, I would guess just based on Kylo's involvement that it was something related to Luke or yeah. something that was like a dark side artifact because like there was all this stuff from... I don't I don't think this stuff counts as canon now, but like in the initial conceptualizing of Kylo and the Knights of Ren, it was that they were ransacking villages and like trying to find Luke's saber for there was the whole story with Maz and like her yeah. stealing it from them and somehow Kylo ended up with Vader's helmet so there are all these like little little things right yeah um but yeah it's obviously left an unclear in the episode we're not supposed yeah. to know because the characters themselves don't know yeah but I agree with you because Kylo was involved I think it's most likely it had something to do with the force and or Luke but yeah I'm sure it will be revisited and I think mm-hmm. we're going to find out more because those children as of the end of the episode they now live on the base, so they are resident on the Colossus. And there's also the ongoing mystery of this symbol that the children were wearing, because, um, oh god, what's the name of the Commander guy again? Dozer. Yeah, and it is Commander Dozer? Oh, Commander Pyre, you mean? Oh, oh no, no, I mean Tora's dad. Oh, Captain Dozer. Captain Dozer, thank you, sorry. <laughs> yeah, and at the very end of the episode, we see Captain Dozer handling that symbol in a very like deep and meaningful moment. So I'm certain that will come up again. And I think those will be clues through which we get a better understanding of what the First Order and Kylo specifically were doing. Yeah, I think Doza knows that Phasma is lying to him at that point where she's like, oh yeah, it's the insignia for a high-profile family and we're trying to find those children out of the goodness of our hearts. <laughs> He's like, yeah, sure. <laughs> I would have liked it if she had done like a real like act of, act of it. It's like, oh, my precious angels. Oh, my little loves. Oh. <laughs> but Kaz as well. Like, he is so incredibly naive. Like, even these <laughs> children who are much younger than him are like, you really think they're trying to find us to help us? <laughs> Do you oh typically God. issue bounties on children that you want to help, Kaz? <laughs> He's like, win-win. I get the money, you get to go home. So, oh my God, Kaz. <laughs> it's like, oh, sweet summer child. Yeah. It's and like of course, that phrase was invented for him. I know. It's cute. <laughs> of course, the Skywalkers are forever dragging the rest of the galaxy into their drama. So. Yeah. Exactly. I love that bit at the end where Ellie's like, Leia Organa will want to hear about this. It's like, oh yeah, she will. Her boy's being naughty. <laughs> like, I wonder if she has like a tally or something. Like, Kylo did bad. Tally mark. Kylo well, yeah, because I, I wonder at this point if she's aware that they're both looking for the same thing because she's trying to find Luke and he is too. Mm. But at this point, like, does Leia even have any understanding of what went down? Because... I'm guessing not, right? In The Last Jedi, she doesn't seem to know what we know now from the flashback of, like, Rey seeing that Luke stood over Kylo when he was sleeping and thought, obviously, he changed his mind, but it was a little too late. Like, Kylo woke up and saw Mm. what was happening. But I doubt that Leia knows that full story because it seems like after that happened, Kylo went to Snoke and Luke fled and that was it. Yeah. So, so interesting. I think that will be the interesting basis for a story at some point, to be honest. I definitely think that by the start of The Force Awakens, like just before the film starts, basically, that 
Kylo knows that the Resistance is looking for the map as well. And that has become more of a race in that they both know that they're looking for the same thing. But yeah, there has to be a story about how that comes to light and how they find that out. Yeah, I mean, Poe doesn't seem surprised in The Force Awakens when Kylo and the troopers show up, right? Yeah, exactly. So that leads me to think that, like, crap, we're both after the same thing and they wound up here as well. Bugger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So I think that sort of happened. Um, yeah. And also from this episode, I need to give a shout out to the shell folk. Oh, I they love are them so awesome. much. They're so, so cool. They're literally, like, my favourite Star Wars aliens that have been introduced for the longest time. They're just wonderful, aren't they? They're so they've got so much personality. It's just gorgeous. They're like on a par with the caretakers for me, and that's yeah. what they reminded me of. They're just yeah. yeah, such wonderful designs and like really lend it this mystical, magical, old world feel. Yeah, and um, and Niku's little friendships with them and like speaking their little language interspersed with basic and oh, yeah, so cute. I'm actually loving Niku more and more, to be honest. Yes! I think I was a bit of a downer on him at first. He's great. I really like him now. And I can also relate to him on a level because he's very literal and I can be very literal. And that sometimes people will say things to me like ironically or sarcastically. And I do not detect the irony or sarcasm. And it quickly becomes very awkward and embarrassing. (laughs) I just love him. He's so generous and sweet and helpful. Like and what is it he says about money? He's like, oh, that's what it's for, spending it on your friends. And I was just like, oh, <laughs> he better not be the spy, Kirsty. I don't think I, I don't think it. he is, but I like the conspiracy theory. I think it's funny. <laughs> that would be like Darth Jar Jar. <laughs> well, yeah, but I love Niku so much more than Jar Jar. So <laughs> the level of betrayal is just too much. Yeah, it'd be much more heartbreaking. Yeah, but just uh, yeah, going back to the the shell folk. It's just so, like, that's just such a cool character design. I hope we just see them more. Like, yeah. the, the fact that they can, like, little do the hibernation in their shells and that they help them out by pretending to, well, they do take the fall, literally. And yeah. It's just great. Yeah. I just can't praise the plot construction of Children of Sahara enough, to be honest. Everything was so well placed because it's the perfect story in that it seeds all of the elements that contribute towards the climax, but you don't clue into what's happening until it happens mm-hmm. you know and th- at that point you're like oh that's so brilliant it's just so cohesive and it comes together really beautifully and yeah there's like nothing no randomness it's all just wonderfully constructed yeah exactly i think resistance is doing a good job of becoming more sophisticated over time and like surprising us because remember just a few episodes ago we were like oh it's obviously for kids like we can see what's gonna happen a mile off yeah and it's not like super super shocking stuff but you're still like oh wow that was really well done yeah and it was also surprisingly dark at the end because basically the first order leaves with the impression that the children committed suicide Mm-hmm. And that's pretty heavy. Obviously, they don't sp- spell that out like in so many words for like a young audience, but they are like all the life signs are dwindling. Yeah, and stuff. I don't care. Yeah, and I think if you were watching that as a six-year-old, you might sincerely think, "Oh shit, the children are dead." Yeah, and that would be some heavy stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was gonna say like with Commander Pyre, like the Gold Trooper. I think it's mm-hmm. kind of cool. 
that we're getting all of these troopers with different colours. Because obviously they've got to work out a way to distinguish them from each other. <laughs> yes. But I'm like, what's next? Are we going to get a pink trooper? I was literally uh, just about to say that. Purple? I was like, where's my pink trooper? Come on. <laughs> They're like Power Rangers. <laughs> Like, I hope it's also like Captain Planet and the Planeteers where they all have their own magic powers. <laughs> like, power of sun! <laughs> but they've just done such a great job with the animation because their helmets are somehow so expressive. Mm. Um, it's like they've made them... I mean, they are cuter because it's animated, but from, from comparing it to the movies, which... The redesign of the helmets for the sequel trilogy was also a way to make them more expressive somehow than the original trilogy. Yeah. But there's something in the way that they draw them that just seems kind of like, I guess it's that chibi style of like, they just look more like scrunched in and like furrowed brow and like, oh, I'm a first order operator. I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing. (laughs) (laughs) It makes me curious to see if we do eventually see him, which I think we will, like how they're going to design Kylo. Because obviously yes. he'll be masked, but yeah. they'll do it in a stylized way. He'll look different. So, yeah, looking forward to that. Yeah, I think they'll have lots of fun with how Kylo moves as well, because all the character movements and resistance are quite exaggerated, mm-hmm. and Kylo just in live action is exaggerated. So, <laughs> who knows how that's going to look? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And then just quickly, we'll have a few chats about Signal from Sector Six which we watched very shortly before recording this, so it's very fresh in our minds. Um, yeah, and in this episode, um, Kaz and his BFF Poe are reunited, and Kaz tells Poe where he's got to. I think Poe's pretty proud of him, which is nice. Um, but then they get a signal from Sector 6, and they go to find that the ship has been raided by pirates, and they find a girl in a box... And then they take her back to the Colossus. But is she all that she seems? So, yes. Uh, to me, this wasn't as good as the previous two episodes that we've discussed. But it was still fun. Uh, it was just there was like more comedy and humour. And that was nice. It just wasn't like as compelling on a narrative level for me. What did you think about it, Kirsty? Um, Kind of similar to you. Like, I enjoyed it. But it was... Um it felt more like mandatory transitions to a different level of plot. So like they had to get Sonara in there. So they had to send Kaz and Poe out on this thing. And then they just happened to bump into this issue that they could help solve. But yeah, it just seemed a little more forced um, out of necessity. But I there were some really great moments I enjoyed. Like I loved seeing Poe again. And I love seeing Poe and BB-8 together. They are so adorable. Yeah. And then CB-23 was really cute. Oh, yeah, no, CB23 was great. Like, there's totally a thing going on with CB23 and BB8, right? Oh, they yeah, they were, like, waving goodbye to each other. Yeah. And then they had that interaction in the corridor where they started to move towards each other before Kaz interrupted them. It was like, yeah, was the droid's going to like kiss. Pro- yeah, I was about to say, it was like a proper romantic moment. It was like, wow, like, I feel like they need a room. <laughs> like, give the droid some space. Yeah, and BB8's all insecure about being replaced while he's with Kaz. Yeah, it was adorable. <laughs> but then they fell in love. So it's like the en- enemies to lovers trope, which we both love so much. Yeah. I guess this was kind of like an ode to the Raftar scene in The Force Awakens, which, as I understand it from the fandom, like it seems to be quite an unpopular scene, to be honest. A lot of people complain about it, kind of feeling a bit dull and like 
kind of similar to this. It's like a transition from one element of the plot to like the next act with them meeting Han Solo and then going off to Takodana. Yes. Um, it seemed like a riff on that. I enjoyed it more than I enjoy the Raftar sequence, to be honest. But Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was absolutely very reminiscent of that. Wasn't the little alien that was in the episodes the same type of alien that was in Return of the Jedi? The one yeah. that was like Jabba's servant. Salacious B. Crumb. Yes, of course. <laughs> oh my god, how did I forget Salacious B. Crumb? My precious... Poe po says the name in the episode. He calls him a Kowakian monkey lizard. <laughs> Which is a great species name, by the way. Yeah. Also, Poe Paul... hates them. <laughs> Good knowledge. So there's presumably some prior bad encounter that caused him to develop those feelings. Mm-hmm. I've got to give full kudos to um, Oscar Isaac, by the way, for the voice acting. He's really, really good at it. And he, he commits. Like, he's so, like, vervy and funny. And I just love it. And it's like when he first meets, um, like, Kaz again at the very start of the episode. And, like, Kaz thinks that Poe's being all nice. And, like, oh, I missed you to him. <laughs> but, nah, Poe's just talking to BBA. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh. I do. That's the thing. I do really like what Resistance is doing with Poe. It's endearing him to me much more than the movies. Well, at least The Force Awakens did. And I like that this is like almost in more of The Force Awakens timeline. So I can go back and watch The Force Awakens now and it enriches my reading of him there. Exactly. Yeah. You're like, oh, this guy I like. Yeah, they just weren't sure what they were going to do with him at that point, right? Like at that point when JJ was writing that stuff, there was this level of understanding that Poe was going to die. So Exactly. Yeah. They've done a lot with the character since then. So yeah, cool. definitely. And I love that little line from Yeager about Poe always bringing home strays, which I'd like <laughs> to think is like a nod to a future story where he, in a way, rescues Finn from his fate as a First Order trooper and helps him find his home in the Resistance. Yeah, no, you're right. That's quite cohesive. And yeah, like I found it really interesting um, when I was rewatching the start of The Force Awakens the other day particularly that scene where Poe is pushed into the hangar of the First Order ship for the first time. And you just see this look of absolute amazement and shock on his face as he realises the scale of it. Because Mm -hmm. that's presumably the first time he's realised how huge that war machine is. And it's just this moment of shock and awe for him because it's like, holy shit. So he knows the First Order's real before that point. But it's all been like these small-scale skirmishes. And I think that's the first time it really hits the fan so to speak yeah and he's comparing it with the resistance's resources or lack thereof right yeah and i think that's where media like resistance comes into its own because we see a poe who's much more relaxed and easygoing Mm -hmm. and he knows that the first order is a threat and wants to find out more but a bit like everyone from the new republic people aren't taking it incredibly seriously that is more like just investigations yeah what do you think about sonara Sonara, yeah, she's interesting. But yeah, we obviously don't see much from her. She's clearly getting up to no good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I think she's going to be a bit of a duplicitous character. But I think there's interesting potential there. Like, I'd like to see a story where she starts out with these bad intentions, but perhaps she becomes close to Kaz or becomes close to Tam or anyone on the Colossus. And she starts to like have mixed feelings and it becomes more complicated than just like infiltrating this place and doing the bidding of her masters. That sort of story would be interesting to me. Yeah, I would like to think so because I don't want I don't want Kaz's naivety and trusting of other characters to be punished. 
Yeah. Like, I want it to be overall a good thing that he's that open and friendly and wants to help. Yeah, exactly. So you'd like to think that she'll be at least somewhat grateful for the kindness that he's shown and presumably Mm -hmm. will continue to show. Exactly. I did also like the um, way that there was a big sequence of them trying to carry Sonara when they were escaping (laughs) the ship. And all I could think was comparing it to the bridal carry in The Force Awakens and how graceful and smooth they made that look. And then Kaz's like, ah, so heavy, so heavy. And well, the way he carries her is like sack of potatoes. I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, exactly. He's like, ah. <laughs> like Poe says to him, do not put her down. <laughs> yeah. Oh, We're it's so to get funny. away from this situation. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my goodness, it's hilarious. So yeah, I'm expecting to see more of Sonara and more of those kids from the children from Tahar. So it's becoming a packed cast. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be quite the like chorus line, so to speak. Yeah, to be- I'm guessing we won't see an awful lot of Oscar in the next couple of episodes because yeah, they can't they can't have him in every episode, and he was in this one pretty much the whole way through. So yeah, no, exactly. It's kind of like special guest star sort of situation. And we appreciate him more the rarer his appearances are. So that's nice. Yeah. I think there's one coming up that's got Phasma in it, right? So Yeah. No, I'm pleasantly surprised by how much Phasma there is. I didn't realise we'd be seeing so much of her. Yeah. She's another one who's much more interesting to me in this show than she was in the movies, to be honest. Yeah, exactly. I like seeing her like be all civil and polite to people like outside of the first order as well. That's a really interesting side of Phasma to see. That mm. we definitely don't get in the films because there she's pretty much just like one note badass. Yeah. So, yeah, it's good. Uh, yeah. So, is there anything else you want to say about the Resistance episodes? Um, I think so. Just maybe we'll get more Kylo Ren references. What is a Kylo Ren? Yeah. Exactly. Maybe the we'll... ultimate question, Nico. Yeah. Maybe we will find out the answer. <laughs> it's like a meta question for the fandom. What oh, totally. Is a Kylo Ren. Yeah, it's very philosophical. Oh, yeah, and I also really hope we get to see Leia reckon with the whole Kylo situation at some point. Oh, yeah. That would be that so was good. Like, does Elo know who Kylo Ren really is? Like, when he says, like, oh, Leia will want to hear about this, is it, like, yeah. because he knows the familial connection or just because he knows that he's a leader of the First Order who is, is you know, trying to thwart their attempts to, to find Luke? Yeah. Did you kind of notice an eye roll from like Ello when he first yes. heard about Kylo Ren? Yeah. It's like, oh, so, like, for Christ's sake. Dickhead again. <laughs> Back at it again with his bullshit. Oh, you need to put that scamp down. Come <laughs> on. <laughs> oh, Lord. So funny. Um, right. Yep. So I think with that wrapped up, I would like to introduce our segment where we have Christy as our special guest. So yeah, please enjoy. Right, so now I want to introduce our special guest for the spotlight, who is, of course, the returning guest, Christy. Would you like to introduce yourself, Christy? Hello, uh, it's Christy. I'm so happy to be back on my favorite podcast. Um, It's been a couple months. It's been a very interesting summer and I've been loving everything you guys have been talking about the past couple of months and I haven't had a chance to start like watching some of the stuff like Resistance and everything but I love hearing you guys talk about it and uh, yeah just what what a time to be a Star Wars fan. What a time to be alive. It's just so much exciting stuff and I'm just really happy to be back here to talk with you. 
Oh, thank you so much. It's lovely to have you back. So I think the last time we had you was when we were talking about the solo soundtrack, right? Yeah, and that was like in June, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, definitely too long. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you have plans to watch Resistance at some point or you just haven't got time to get around to it? I really want to watch it. I just, because we're like cord cutters, I haven't figured out how oh, to yeah. get it. Because I, I I got the app and then it was like, please sign in with your cable provider. And I was like, I don't have one of those. So <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you have Amazon, but I'm watching it through there on Prime. Oh, I do have that. Yeah, that's an option because we don't have cable either, but. Oh, okay. I didn't know I could watch it on there. That's awesome. Yeah, I All think right, it's I'll get, even, I'll hop to it. I think it's even on iTunes. I'd have to check, but I think I've seen people okay, saying cool. they're watching it through that too. So All right. There's there's ways to do it. Mm-hmm. I gotta I gotta figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> so that'd be a nice thing to watch with the kids as well. So I don't know if they're old enough for the Star Wars films proper yet, but resistance no. would probably be perfect. That's awesome. Yeah. I'd love to watch it with them. Yeah. Ideal. Um Right. So then I think we have a few bullet points of things we want to go over with Christy. So the mm-hmm. first thing we want to talk about is an incredibly exciting experience that Christy had, which is her getting the opportunity to visit Skywalker Ranch, I believe. Is that right, Christy? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Yes. Yeah. So if you could just explain how that came about and what the experience was like, that'd be wonderful. Of course. Um, there, The Sundance uh, organization, Sundance Institute, sorry, is, you know, we all know from the festival and, uh, from all the other wonderful programs that they put on, but they also have a lot of what they call labs, which is development for directors, screenwriters, um, and composers. So there's the Sundance Film Music Lab, which has been going on for, you know, 25 years. And I heard about it a couple of years ago. They used to hold it out in, actually Utah where this where Sundance is um I can't remember the name of that town Park City yeah they used to hold it in Park City and Mm. they would have like these little trailers just up in the woods where the composers had their workstations and they have various mentors that come in and um you bring in directors and you're paired, you work with your composer mentors the first week and then paired with a director the second week scoring uh, scenes from their film. So about five or six years ago, they actually partnered with Skywalker Sound to start having the lab there on the ranch. And the composers, you know, stay in the beautiful, like it's a hotel, it's the, all the different rooms are themed with different directors and writers and artists and architects that George Lucas admires. And um, then you walk up the road to the main tech building and you have your own little composing room and it's the same setup with the mentors the first week and the directors the second week. So I only heard about the lab a couple of years ago and I started applying faithfully every year, but uh, so many people apply for this thing and it used to be that 12 got accepted and then they moved it down to 10 and then they moved it down to eight. Wow. And this past year they had 820 applicants for these eight spots. And so I'd been, it's something that I'd been working towards that I really wanted to do. Like I recognized as I was getting rejection after rejection, I recognized that 
you know, I need to really come up with some music that speaks to who I am as a composer and that shows my original voice and all of that. So I worked for two years on writing and financing and producing a demo of music um, inspired by a book series that I really love. And some fans of the book series really came through and helped me fund it. And that's part of what I sent. And um, I wrote some new music this year as well. And when I received the call that I'd gotten in, I, I didn't believe him. I screamed in his ear, the, the head of the film music program. I screamed. <laughs> I think I, actu I actually said the F word. I was <laughs> so astonished because, of course, this is operating on two levels for me, not just getting to go be a part of this two-week lab, this intensive thing that's going to improve my craft so much. It's also taking place at freaking Skywalker Sound. It's taking place at... The Holy Land for Star Wars fans, one of two, you know, the other one being the actual Lucasfilm headquarters. <laughs> and so it, when I arrived there, I think I was on, I was immediately on a different level. Like, of course, all my composer fellows that I was there with were super excited, but none of them are quite as immersed in Star Wars and the fandom as I am. Yeah. And the, all the guys that worked there and all the ladies that worked there very quickly recognized this about me, um, especially Josh, the head of Skywalker, who is just such an amazing person. Mm. As soon as he understood what level I was on, he went out of his way to arrange that when I was done with my work, my musical work and my mentorships and all of our listening sessions, and we would go watch all the um, films that the directors were bringing in, he would arrange for me to sit down with a different person who had worked on the original trilogy, the prequels, and the sequel trilogy. Wow. So I got to sit with Ben Burt for an hour and see the original Darth Vader breathing apparatus and see the original synthesizer that he used to create R2-D2's voice, see some like third and fourth draft scripts, and have him tell me all these amazing stories. I got to sit with John Roche, who is, you know, one of the most famous Foley artists in the world and pioneered all these Foley techniques and go down to the Foley stage and see how they recorded all these different things. Um, I got to sit with Ren Kleiss for an hour. <laughs> I got to I got to pick Ren Kleiss's brain about anything I wanted to ask him about. And um, he was so open and so kind. And, you know, not only the architect of this incredible sound design that is so important to these films, but also mixed the score. Yeah. Also was at was at the recording session with John Williams was, you know, has been intimately involved in that side of it, too. And actually, um, the sound designer that I was paired with, because not only are you paired with a director, you're paired with one of the sound designers that works full time at Skywalker. Mm -hmm. And they do the sound design on the film that you work on the music. Um, Tom, who I was paired with, he mixed um, Revenge of the Sith. He is currently working on the music for the new theme park that's opening and mixing that and doing sound design for that. So I was like fully immersed and everywhere you walk in that building, it's first of all, it's the most gorgeous building and the most gorgeous grounds you've ever been on. And everywhere you turn, there's some really cool um, prop or memorabilia or um, sculpture from the movies. Even just in the, the big screening room where we would screen our work, there were the two statues in the front from Palpatine's office, from his like Senate office. <laughs> and as soon as I posted it on Tumblr, you know, everybody was researching like, what do these statues mean? What are they from? And like posting all the mythology and like digging it all up. And it was so cool. Um, 
Yeah, and, and the other great part about it was I didn't just have these little one-on-one sessions. You know, these guys, they come early and eat breakfast, and there's like a gourmet chef on staff who cooks breakfast for everybody and lunch wow. and dinner. And I would just be sitting having my coffee, and one of them would just come up and sit down and start eating, and we'd have these beautiful little conversations where they were so open with sharing with me anything I wanted to know. And, of course, nothing that they are unauthorized to talk about, nothing that would – you know, violate any sort of NDA or any sort of thing of about an ongoing project, but about all the stuff that's already happened. They mm-hmm. were so willing to answer any question, any piece of trivia, talk to me about the experience, talk to me about um, what it was like to be creating. And then, you know, I'd, I'd take a wrong turn and get lost and be walking down a hallway and come across the all the posters from all the, all the Star Wars films and see the Last Jedi poster signed by Ryan with this adorable little Ryan-esque message. Aww. And, you know, other JJ's writing on this other poster. Like, it was just to be surrounded by that and to be immersed in it while I was having this really intense creative experience. It was totally priceless for me. Yeah. God, that sounds like an absolute dream. Wow. And then we got to record on the stage. Like, I've been to all the stages in LA, um, not with my own music, but as a guest on other people's sessions. And when I went to Sony, which is where John Williams prefers to record and where The Force Awakens and um, The Last Jedi were recorded, I thought that that was the best sounding stage I've ever heard in my life. But I really, once I heard the stage at Skywalker, I'm like, I don't know, man, this is, this might like rival (laughs) Sony. It was so beautiful. And I got to hear my music performed on that stage and the mixers who were mixing it and recording it are the same guys that have worked on so many of these projects. And it was, it was many moments of it were very surreal. Mm. So it was, it was just unbelievable. It sounds absolutely amazing. I can't imagine what it's like to have a conversation with someone like Ren Kleiss and just (laughs) casually be like, I am a huge fan of this movie. And I just can't believe I'm sat here talking to someone who worked on what, my level of expertise is the music the sound design everything mm-hmm. that just mm-hmm. must have been absolutely incredible yeah he was so funny because his his room was actually right down the hall from where my little writing station was set up and i thought that he was on vacation like there were quite a few guys who had worked on the last jedi who were on vacation because it's the middle of the summer and so i was just leaving these little post-it notes on his door <laughs> <laughs> And then one day I came up to my to my room and there was a little post-it note from him. And he's like, I'm here now, like, come by. Aww. So, um, yeah, and I got, he was starting to talk to me and he was telling me things that I'd already read in interviews. So once again, I was already like finishing his sentences. <laughs> he's just like, okay, okay. So you, you know all this already. And I'm like, yeah, come on, let's talk some more. Um, <laughs> Deep cut, and he was deep so cut. cool. Yeah, deep cuts only, please. Like, let's <laughs> be sides. Like, let's get into this. So, and he did. And he was so gentle and lovely and kind. And pretty much, every, like, everybody who works there is such an amazing creative professional and such a, like, joyous human to be around. I made friends there. You know, the guys who, are, who made the food, the guys who... Um, take care of the facilities like everybody was just the nicest happiest person and they have all kinds of lovely activities that they do every week like they brought in this gelato truck and catered all kinds of beautiful meals for us and like special parties and we drank the wine that they make there because they have like a working vineyard there um Oh my gosh, it was, and the weather was so perfect. It just, every day you get up and walk up the path and you could hear no city sounds, just birds and wind. The air was so pure and clean. Um, 
just I would just walk and I would turn my phone on and just record that because of course living in LA and like I know you both live in big cities you don't ever get to hear that complete silence mm. and just beautiful wind in the trees and the birds and everything it was it's such an isolated little piece of paradise and working there was such an isolated bubble of just joyous creativity and um it, it was just so exciting I'm any composer listening to this who wants to apply for it and is frightened by the odds or whatever like I was too I almost didn't apply this year I was almost too scared to or didn't think I was good enough and I just kept going because that's who I am I have a very dogged sense of well might as well be me I'm going to keep trying so (laughs) it was a hundred percent worth it in every way to have kept trying all those years applying 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 so yeah. Wow. What wonderful vindication, though. Like, I don't <laughs> think my feet would truly touch the ground if I were in that situation. Like, I'm sure you probably felt like that. But I, I think I'll just always be pinching myself. Like, did it ever? I was. I was. Did it yeah. ever feel real kind of when you were there? Did you kind of like adjust and it was kind of like normal towards the end of no. the period there? <laughs> no. The only the only thing that kept it somewhat sane was the the composer fellows I was there with. So it was really, really interesting, the group that they assembled this year. There were five women and three men. So it was the first time ever that there were more women than men. And this is only two years after they achieved gender parity for the first time. So the five women were all from L.A. And we all live here and work in the business, but we were so different from each other. All five of us came from such different backgrounds and work on such different projects. Mm. And then the three men that came... One was from London and he's a very, he lives in New York and London and bounces around. He's a very well-known jazz pianist from a really well-known jazz group, like a super group called Snarky Puppy, whose music I've been obsessed with for years. So I'd already knew all about him. Another one, um, he's Danish, but he lives in London and he's a very well-known composer of classical contemporary music. And I already knew about him. And then another one um, was from, he's from Atlanta and he's like a professor at a college down there. And he has an amazing background in like American gospel and spiritual music. And he's, he won the Marvin Hamlish film scoring competition um, a couple years ago and is just you know, coming into his own as a film composer is so brilliant. So the combination of these eight people, there was no competition. There was no sense that we were striving against each other. There was no feeling that we were trying, anyone was trying to be, quote, the best. We were all so different that we really learned from each other. And we all felt the sense of complete awe to be sitting in the presence of Thomas Newman. Like, he was one of the advisors this year, this composer who I'd been obsessed with since I was so young. Um, you know, he did American Beauty, The Shawshank Redemption, like, all of these movies. And he's, you know, Finding Nemo, Finding Dory, Oscar-nominated, Oscar-winning, like, comes from the dynasty of Hollywood film composers. Like, he's just, he's like an icon. He changed the game. He's a complete innovator. He's a complete original. And here I am, sitting in a little room, and he's listening to my music. Wow. <laughs> and he's like giving me suggestions. And we actually only talked about the music for like the first 15 minutes I had with him. And then the rest of the time we talked about life. We talked about our our spouses and our children and about evolving as an artist and like what you want to say as an artist and how you survive in Hollywood in the long term and how you have to think of yourself. And he, it was just like, I, I couldn't stop pinching myself, but then luckily at night I would go eat dinner and go have a, a glass of wine with these seven other people who were feeling the exact same thing. Mm. And so we kind of like processed it together. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's interesting that you bring up that issue of gender parity because that does seem to have been more central to the the conversation recently. I've noticed it a lot with female directors, of course, but lately I've noticed more discussion on the lack of female composers getting these big gigs in Hollywood too. So was that something that was kind of a conscious element of the discussion going on at Skywalker Ranch? Well, not so much at, um, at Skywalker. I think that they, they have several female sound designers that work there who are um, absolutely amazing. Um, it still is kind of like a, a male-dominated atmosphere, but you never really felt that mm. while you were there mm. because the, they're all so amazing, beautiful, like open, kind, respectful. Um, I think that's more on the mind of the people at Sundance. It's um, They've always encouraged diversity of voices and they've always wanted more women to apply. And really the reason why more mem- women have been getting into the lab is because way more women are applying. Mm. It's the, the whole question for me on this issue is never, I never want to be hired just because I'm a woman. Yeah. However, I want my demo in the room. Yeah, I want I want to be considered and women want to be considered. And the, the problem is that it's extremely difficult for anyone to succeed in this career. It's extremely competitive. It's the odds of actually, quote, making it on like a significant level are so low. It's basically a marathon that you have to be willing to run for an extremely long period of time. And it just so happens that most of the people who entered the marathon back in the day were, you know, a certain color and a certain gender. And now as more and more diverse voices have entered the marathon and are staying in the marathon, now we're seeing that it's starting to open up. Our voices are starting to get in the room to be considered. And I always want the best person for the job to get the job. I've never lost a gig to a male composer and thought to myself, oh, that's because I'm a woman. Like, mm. I'm sure that there's there's elements that may have affected and there certainly are still sexist people in the industry, but I've always felt, I've always trusted that it is this strange alchemy of the way people get along, the way relationships are formed in Hollywood, that person's music being considered the perfect fit for the project. I've been considered the perfect fit for another project. There's just, now that Pinar Toprak is scoring Captain Marvel, now there is kind of this awareness of everybody like, oh, wow, this really is the first woman to score a Marvel movie or a big superhero movie like this is she's the first one to break through this like concrete ceiling. And so now everyone's kind of like, wow, OK, well, let's let's go hear the rest of these women. Let's put their demos in consideration. Let's mm. reach out to them. Let's bring them in. It's a more conscious effort at this point. And that is what so many pioneers of of film music who happen to be women and so many organizations have been working towards. It's not, you must hire us. It's you must consider us. You must consider this wider range of voices because it only helps the storytelling. It only helps the, the piece of art that's being created to have all these different voices coming from all these different backgrounds. So, yeah. No, so I was just thinking like, I was trying to just off the top of my head think of the names of female composers and I was struggling really hard. The only one mm-hmm. I could like honestly think of spontaneously was Mika Levi who did yeah. the soundtrack for Jackie and I think Under the Skin but I haven't seen Under the Skin. Under the Skin, yep. Um, and, She's amazing. Yeah, and the Jackie soundtrack was just I think that might have been my best score of that year. It was incredible. And yeah. It's so raw. It's so emotionally powerful. Yeah. And that's that's not uncommon. Like a lot of people can name Rachel Portman 
uh, and Dudley, those are the women that have won Oscars. Mm. The two, the two, by the way. Wow. Um, and, but yet I belong to an organization called the Alliance for Women Film Composers, and we have over 300 members. We actually wow. have close to 400 members. And there's a lot of talent. There's a lot of women um, starting to, you know, become better known names and working on higher profile projects and stuff. So it's really, it's, it's slow going and it feels like it should be faster. I spoke on a panel last month where I referenced this study that the USC Annenberg Diversity Initiative did, Mm. where they studied the top 100 grossing films over the past 10 years. And it was out of all of those films, you know, that's like 1100 films, um, 14 women had scored them. Mm. Wow. 14, 14 over 10 years. That's pretty staggering <laughs> to think about. My God. And when you, when you look at it that way, you go, oh, okay. There's, there's pretty much no other facet of the industry where it's quite that bad. And that's a very clear illustration of the fact that it's clear that women aren't even being considered for these opportunities because there's no way it would be so extremely, like such an extremely small number if women were being considered and given equal consideration to men in those situations. Yeah, and it's better, the numbers are better in TV, the numbers are better in indie film, but we're talking about the top 100 grossing films, the mm. ones that are really going to pay you yeah, and give you like, you know, the cachet in your career and lead to other things. It's kind of a catch-22 when any new composer is trying to to get a gig because you don't, they don't want to hire you until you have the credits, but you can't get the credits. Yeah. As, as, you know, just a, just a composer starting out. So that's why me and any other composer who's kind of mid-career like this, I never have an answer of how to get started. The only thing I know how to say is just, just, go, just go start doing it. Like I literally went to film schools and I put a flyer up that had my name and number on it and my website and said, hey, I want to score your film. Mm. And I, I just started working on student films and then I branched off into other things and then I started working in the library, the production music industry. You have to find your own path and your own way of doing it, but the only way to do it is to just start, even if that means you're doing projects for low pay or no pay yeah. or you're doing it for credit, for experience. It's just the nature of the industry. It's um, the supply of composers has has gotten into be this humongous number and it's basically a buyer's market to choose what you want what composer you want to use so you can be the most talented person in the world but if you haven't distinguished yourself in some way to say here look look what I can do I worked on this really cool thing look check out this demo I have like and you're out there kind of making yourself known that's it's it's such a you have to combine so many different skills and so many different ways of promoting yourself that it's kind of a special sauce that's going to be different for everyone yeah everyone has their own unique path um yeah another item we actually have down to discuss some kind of ties into this so um i'll just get to this a little bit early is that there's a new youtube series called our star wars stories and the composer for that is jermaine stagall and he is a man of color and mm-hmm. yeah it's exciting to see a new voice being given that opportunity like with a big brand like star wars obviously it's just a youtube show but i imagine that's the sort of opportunity that can lead to much bigger things absolutely and he's also an alumni of the sundance program 
Um, I know him. I met him at the uh, Sundance reunion party that was a couple weeks ago, and we had a great conversation. Oh, and wow. a lot of a lot of my friends know him really well. Um, and he was actually also a finalist in the Universal Diversity Initiative, where they had um, a bunch of women and people of color that they uh, plucked out of it. And again, a huge submission, and um, to end up scoring like some uh, Universal animation projects and stuff. He was a finalist in that. So he's a fantastic composer. He's a great person um and he I've only watched the first part of that but I love the music I love what he's doing and it is very exciting it's really cool to see that they are committed in this way to opening it up and bringing new voices in that aren't necessarily um you know, the same people that they've worked with before. And it's really, it's really cool. I was, when I saw that, I was so proud of him. I actually hadn't heard about it though, um, until I saw him posted on one of my favorite Instagram accounts, which is called Star Wars Music. And this is a fantastic account that keeps updated on everything happening in this world. And I saw his picture pop up and I was like, Jeremy, that's so cool. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, it's really wonderful. Yeah. I haven't watched many of the episodes, but I did watch the one with the um, Perales family. Because yeah. I know of Sal Perales from the, Now This Is Podcasting, the Making Star Wars podcast. And oh, yeah. Yeah, it was, a, it was a really charming episode just in its own right in terms of the content and the stories that the family tell. It's very touching. But yeah, the music did strike me. It was like really like surprisingly intricate for like a YouTube like short like that you know and clearly a great deal of thought had been given to make it personal to yeah. the people taking part. There is actually a interview on stars.com with Jermaine where he does speak yeah. about like exactly what went into it. So I need to make sure I sit down and read that properly. It must be a really interesting tightrope to walk composing for Star Wars because you want to obviously honour this incredible legacy that John Williams has, but also put your own spin on it so that it's distinctive and feels fresh. Mm-hmm. So yeah, especially with difficult. these with these smaller projects too. Like when I'm watching, even when I'm watching forces of destiny with my kids, I'm listening to the music and listening to the orchestration and how they combine themes and write new ones. And, you know, it's the same composers on, on every episode that are doing characters from rebels, characters from the original trilogy, characters from the sequel trilogy, and they're weaving all these themes in. And it's, it's really cool. I love that stuff. Yeah. So much of that music has become part of our collective subconscious, you know, so Absolutely. It must be really interesting to kind of weave in certain elements and then put a little twist on it so that it feels unexpected and specific to those scenes and, and those newer characters as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, another thing that we wanted to talk about was um, there was going to be a concert conducted by John Williams in London at the Royal Albert Hall. And I was actually meant to go to that concert. Um, I remember that, yeah. yeah. Um, and basically, I think four days before the concert was meant to happen, everyone who was attending, including myself, got an email from the Royal Albert Hall announcing that John Williams had to withdraw. And the, the concert... Heartbreaking. Yeah, it was very heartbreaking. The, the concert still went ahead. And I did end up going, even though I was very much like, eh, about it. Because so much of the whole point of going for me was to see John Williams there and 
hear him conducting his own music because of course this friday i'm going to see a new hoping concert in also at the royal albert hall and it's basically the same orchestra the london symphony orchestra so i was like like same orchestra same music do i really want to go but i did end up going and i'm so glad i did so it was a fabulous concert and it all sounded note perfect it was exquisite beautiful playing but obviously there was a real atmosphere of like sadness and poignancy that John wasn't able to be there so that was a bummer Mm -hmm. but I was still glad to go um yeah like what are your thoughts on that situation Christy I suppose like when I booked the ticket I knew it was a risk you know he is so old and you are going to be quite liable to health conditions and so on and so forth but yeah like do you know if he cancels many concerts in the US like I guess it's inevitable no I, I actually, I hadn't, I mean, every year I go see him at the Bull mm. and he's never canceled that. He, what he started to do is over the past couple of years, David Newman does the first half of the concert and John comes out and does the second half. Whereas mm. in previous years he would conduct the whole thing. Mm. Um, but I've, I've never seen him cancel something like this. And he, you know, all of the events, like when I went to his AFI Lifetime Achievement Award, when he was at the BMI Film and TV Awards, when they honored him earlier this year, he is still so spry and in, you know, he moves so well and he's still so sharp mentally um, that I think that's why it was so surprising for everybody. But um, they did mention that it was a quote routine illness. Yeah. And, and that it was back in 2015, there was a Spielberg film that he had to drop out of um, that he was going to score. And he, because of the same thing, he had to drop out. So I've, I've never really gotten any inside information as to what that is, but um And I was trying to reach some friends to see, to confirm if he is back in the States. And I wasn't able to confirm that. But um, I mean, when we, of course, when we all got the news that he was recovering and that, yeah, it was serious enough for him to be hospitalized, but that he was on the mend, it was this huge sigh of relief from everyone because like, that's an inevitable reality that we're all going to have to face, but I just don't want to have to face it. Yeah. Anytime, anytime soon, you know? (laughs) Yeah. It's still something that I want, like in the far future, so exactly yeah and I think it's kind of like everyone understands that he's like a like an older man and that obviously that brings health problems and it means you can't do everything that you were formerly able to do but as you say he's still quite sprightly and he's still so active in terms of everything he does and how many concerts he does in the US and I think for a lot of Styles fans selfishly because of course fans come here from a selfish point of view it's like oh please let john be able to score nine please let john be able to score nine yeah yeah and of course nothing should get in the way of his health and if for any yeah. reason he is not able to do nine then i think everyone should be completely supportive of that and completely understanding but yeah we yes. want him to score and nine I- in any world where that is possible basically yeah and i think that everybody also should be feeling pretty decent about if he was to be prevented to finish, like the work that he and Powell did together on solo and like the the grasp that Powell has on the material and how well he came through and how, I, I mean, I, he personally astonished me mm. at how well he was able to, to just slip right into that chair of, of writing this epic Star Wars orchestral score more so than Giacchino. Um, I think that we're, everybody should rest easy. Like I'm sure that he has his themes sketched out on his little four staff um, 
sketching paper and his orchestrators know where he's going and he has every I'm sure he's been mapping things out so if he were to be prevented from finishing I'm sure that there are there's enough material and enough gathering especially because of the type of director that JJ is in the way that he and John have worked together previously it would it would come out beautiful regardless yeah but it, there there is a, a poetic symmetry to him finishing nine and then being done with Star Wars so of course, it's what we everybody wants, you know. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. You want it for him as well, right? For it to be yeah. the last, supposedly the last episode of the Skywalker saga and the trilogy of trilogies. Exactly. But you're right. Finish what he started. Yeah. 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 Um, but also to raise, yeah, to go back to your point about that, it because it's the last film in a trilogy, there probably are a lot of things that he's going to evolve in this natural way from episode seven and eight presumably and maybe mm-hmm. even bring mm-hmm. in a lot of stuff from the originals and prequels too yeah so yeah obviously mm-hmm. we don't know it's early days and i don't even know if he's familiar with what's going to happen in nine uh, i don't know how yeah. that works whether jj kind of gives him a heads up mm-hmm. or he's shown any dailies or anything but things are probably starting to come together yeah yeah i would imagine so and when when i was talking to josh and you know he had seen the script and a couple of the Skywalker guys that are going to be working on the sound design had seen the script and I kind of got the feeling that it's you know thing as they shoot things evolve and things change and they they scoot things around and stuff so but I I am firmly in the camp that everything has been decided before they started and that there's this arc has been in place since the beginning and that J-Dubs has known since the beginning how it's going to all end and how it's all going to come around so I feel I feel confident that the things that are musically going to happen in episode nine are things that he has been aware of this entire time and uh, has been like at least sketched out and at least kind of prepared for even with the turnover and director and all of that stuff. So, mm. yeah, I know last time we had you on, we were talking about Solo a lot because that was kind of the new film of the day. And as you say, John Powell really knocked it out of the park. Um, yeah. But now a few months have gone by. Have you had more thoughts on episode nine and what you might want to see develop in that score? Oh, yes. I mean, I've spent the entire... I mean, when it came... The Last Jedi came out on December... Was it the 15th or the 14th, that Friday night, when I came out of it and I turned around and went back in and watched it again. And then... Or it was a Thursday night. And then I took the day off and went and watched it again. And then I went again on Sunday and Monday. I'm thinking back to like <laughs> this this time since that night, there's been nothing else that I've thought about more and that I have discussed more. Mm. And I've kind of I've kind of gotten to the point like I used to just go to war with anybody who was A, letting the entire point of Star Wars go over their head, B, letting the subtlety of what John Williams did with the score for The Last Jedi go right over their head. And I used to feel very compelled to point out to them that so much of the sequel trilogy is supposed to be very internal and very cryptic and very, the intentions are not clear. And that applies to the music as well. But now I've become so active in creating things in the fandom and having discussions that are very like, intriguing and thought-provoking and digging deeper into these themes that I have like zero time to to argue with anybody about you know them not understanding what eight set up and what nine is going to deliver yeah so I I firmly believe that in the same way that the 
The Force Awakens introduced us to these new themes that are so iconic, Ray's theme, the Jedi steps and the Scherzo for the Resistance and all these things. And then Eight kind of took this material and was very internal with it and was, you know, so much of the music between Ray and Kylo Ren is kind of ominous and cryptic. And because, you know, through so many of those interactions, he's like literally tempting her to the dark side. And he's, you know, it's so confusing what his intentions are and she doesn't know and she's reacting to him in that way. And it's only resolved when their hands are touching and the force theme is playing and there's a perfect fifth hanging in, in that harmony. So I am fully, fully expecting a Raylo theme. Like I will go on the record and say that like, I, I absolutely think that that's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't know how he's going to choose to do it. Mm. It could, it could end up being another iteration of the force theme. Cause that has been their theme so far. We shall see. I fully want to hear a Ben Solo redemption theme, and I'm not. I don't know if that will come out of some things that we heard in the Force Awakens in the Last Jedi. There's been little hints laid here and there. Mm. I really, really want a Finn theme. Yeah, really badly want that. Yeah, <laughs> he needs it so much. It's like yeah. Rose has a theme. Finn needs a theme. Okay. Yeah, and it's it's kind of cool to think that like. Like, what was John posting on Instagram stories, like, a week ago? He was, like, posting pictures of these fireworks in his story and saying, Star Wars fam, celebrating because we crushed it. And I'm looking at his stories wondering, like, okay, what are you talking about? Like, you're not, you guys aren't done shooting. Like, are you celebrating that you wrapped shooting at a certain location? Are you celebrating some sort of, like, big scene and development for Finn? Like, there's so many different ways that his story could go and that his art could go. But then I think he was also answering questions on Instagram or on Twitter saying, like, don't you worry, I got this. Like, they're asking, is Finn going to have, like, a big heroic moment? Or Mm -hmm. is he going to have, like, a big... And he's like, I got this, don't worry. So (laughs) there's so many many different ways that it it could happen. And it's very poetic to think that, like, his whole arc and his whole journey across the Force Awakens and The Last Jedi is going to come into beautiful fruition in Episode Nine, And then that's when you get this theme for him now that he has really come through the gauntlet of all these things that he experienced across these two movies. He's committed now. He's committed for his own reasons. It's really beautiful. And I really want to hear that. Mm, me too john seems so excited about nine already um and he was excited about eight as well of course but because the plot diverged things took a very different turn for him and now things are kind of coming back together and as you say finn is like he knows where he belongs now he's decided that for himself and as a result i would like to think that there's going to be a theme that seems really resolute and strong um but still Mm. retains that humor and vulnerability that the character has yeah and and I feel like in a way it could end up being related to Rose's theme. It could um, kind of spring from elements of that thematic and harmonic material. That would be really cool to link them together in that way. Um, kind of the same way that there are similarities between Ray's theme and Kylo's theme and, you know, hints of permutations of Across the Stars. But I've actually never been like behind this whole idea that Across the Stars should have some sort of magnificent significance for Raylo because like <laughs> that's not a great thing like it's a beautiful theme it's a beautiful gorgeous stunning um, one of my favorite pieces of music he's ever written but it what it is a tied to is very tragic mm. and very terrible the way that it ends and 
I just, even though I, I believe in reverse Anidala and Kylo and Rey correcting the mistakes, the cosmic mistakes that were made by Anakin and Padme, I also don't necessarily think that Across the Stars has to have this like big significance to what their theme will be, yeah. to what the Raylo theme will be, to what their how their themes will evolve or how even the their story will evolve. So, yeah. Yeah, I would like to think that if we did hear Across the Stars, it would be because there was more of an overt reference to Anakin and Padme in the story. Yeah, um, yeah. Like, and, and it could come from Kylo's arc or something relating to Leia or Luke or something. But yeah, it, that it would be that echo back to the prequels in terms of what those characters meant for the saga as opposed to just kind of echoing Rey and Kylo. Absolutely. Mm. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, Padme is one of my favorite characters in the saga period, so oh, I would me just, too. I don't know if they can somehow weave it in, or not. I doubt that they would get Natalie Portman back personally for it, but who knows? Mm. Um, but if they can bring back Aiden Christensen as Anakin, then they can still weave in that element, and I think at that point it would be almost strange if we didn't hear Across the Stars in some form. Yeah. And don't, don't you, I mean, this is probably me wildly speculating, but I can't help but feel like Hayden is going to have something to do with episode nine. Based on so. his, like, coming out of the woodwork, his convention appearances, his, like, new movie that he did recently that was, like, a, apparently a huge hit, that, like, Little Italy movie that he was in. Um, like, going and playing that charity soccer thing, and he looked so good, and he looked so happy. Like, it feels, like, very interesting timing, that mm-hmm. while they're filming and while they're preparing this whole thing, that he has, like, emerged. Yeah, I mean, he's made no secret of the fact that he would be happy to be part of it again. So yeah, they only have to call. And exactly. they could keep it secret, you know, right up oh, until the last second. Oh, they absolutely could. So. Are there these, like, portraits or something like that? Like, I have no idea how yeah. they'd work that in without being corny. Well, they need to bring it back something. around in some sense because of how they reference Vader in The Force Awakens. Right, there's the mm-hmm. whole idea of mm-hmm. too much Vader in him, and then there's Kylo mm-hmm. actually talking to the helmet, and then there's all the mystery around that. It's like, is he talking to Vader, or was it some kind of trick from Snoke? Like, are we going to get back to that, or is it going to be the case of kind of a dropped thread? So, is is a is a Force ghost going to? I mean, we know that Luke's Force ghost is going to be bugging bugging Ben, but like, could Anakin's Force ghost be bugging? I know this has been done to death. We've seen so much art. I actually have a piece of a uh, GIF saved on my phone of Kylo twerking with Force ghost Anakin hitting his head against a wall in like shame and embarrassment. Like, I know that I know this has been talked about and thought about a lot, but I am also thinking about it a lot. And just every time I see Hayden in the news, and you never heard anything from him from so long, and then now he's just starting to like be everywhere so that just made me a little bit more of a believer in that not not the twerking but the uh the force ghost. <laughs> yeah oh man i love the whole idea of the force ghosts haunting kylo i i just have like an image in my mind of like stupid voices though it's like ben ben <laughs> hey ben benny boy <laughs> 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 and just like uh, when I when I hear that, I just picture Adam on SNL when he was like having that internal dialogue and he was cringing and making all those faces. Like I'm just seeing his face right now doing that. Oh my god! <laughs> I have those gifs saved on my phone too. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, just because we were bringing up um, across the stars a little bit, have we all listened to that new arrangement that John Williams? Prepared? Yes. 
yes, it made me oh cry. Oh my god, it's it, so amazing. It is really, really good. I think I prefer it to the original arrangement, actually. Like, th this will sound weird, and I don't have, obviously I don't have anywhere near as much of a musical ear as you do, Christy. But to my ear, it sounded a bit more like toned down i guess in the original orchestration it's and i it's prefer very that. intimate yeah. yeah it's it's intimate and it's very i don't know if delicate is the right word for it um you know the way it originally happens in the films it kind of like i discussed when i talked about the love themes of star wars in that one meta how the theme is introduced in these little moments before you get the full-fledged version of it. Mm. All these little moments between Anakin and Padme where the melody kind of starts and it's in like a, 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 a different instrument and in each time and then it's kind of like hinting at it and then we get that big robust like expression of it. This one, the way that it's orchestrated, I mean, to me, this is just proof that a lot of people say, oh, John Williams was in his prime during the prequels. Like, he's he's never going to be as good as he was when he did the prequels. Like, you can't tell me that and then hear this arrangement and hear this orchestration. I mean, this is a master at work. Yeah. He's always been very economical, the way that he can achieve so much through such a simple thing. Um, and I'm not saying this is a simple piece, but the way that he has scaled it back and the intimacy he has brought to it with this arrangement... And also, I mean, he and this violinist have been friends for so long, and he's been writing and arranging things for her for so long. And her emo emotional, personal connection to this music and the expression with which she plays, mm. it is, I mean, I just, I was, I was uh, offline as usual all day, and I came back to it last night, and it was just the most beautiful thing to come back online for, especially with everything that's going on in the world right now and how much the world is hurting right now. It, um, listening to that, like, healed me it like cleared my skin you know added 10 years to my life made me feel amazing and I just I've had it on repeat and I'm gonna write some meta about it um tonight after the kids go to bed because it's it's just so powerful and I want to get my thoughts out on it yeah it totally deserves it yeah so is that part of um a new project that's kind of um like building on John Williams existing themes I think that from what I gathered from that article is that he is just doing new arrangements of like his most famous themes for her. Okay. And he's, he's done stuff like that before, but um, it's interesting to me that that is the, the one that he chose from star Wars for her to do. Um, oh, and also um, when I was at the Hollywood bowl this past summer for his concert, for his annual concert, it was really special because I the organization I mentioned before, the Alliance for Women Film Composers, I, um, because I, I belong to it, but I also volunteer, and the executive director wanted to um, reward me and the other volunteers. So they actually got us through the recording music, the recording musicians organization, they got us box seats with a full picnic dinner, like literally a couple rows away from the stage. And wow. this concert happened to coincide with the 40th anniversary of Spielberg and, and John Williams working together. So Spielberg was there and he came out and they played a clip from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade without the music. And Spielberg was just like ripping on himself the whole time <laughs> and calling, saying like, what a shitty filmmaker I am. This doesn't even make sense without the music. And then the orchestra played it with Williams conducting. And, you know, you could see how the scene just comes alive. And he always does a bunch of um, 
encores, of course. And you know it's the last one when he makes the little pillow with his hands and does, like, sleepy time. And he always does quite a lot of Star Wars as the uh, as the encore. And then he came out for the last encore that was going to be Star Wars related. And he said, I'm going to do something from The Last Jedi. And I'm not going to lie. I had been drinking quite a lot of wine. <laughs> and I jumped out of my seat. Like, he started describing... The, you know, it's from the end of the film. And I, I honestly thought he was about to do the spark. Like, I really thought that he was about to do that. And I, like, lost my shit. Oh. But he he ended up doing um, Rose's theme. It was, like, a kind of like a concert suite type compilation of Rose's theme and a couple other themes from, from the film. And it was so awesome to hear, like, episode eight music. Not just Ray's theme, not just like some of the Force theme or any of this other stuff. Like just to hear the stuff that he created specifically for Episode Eight, yeah. To just rev- revel in the Last Jedi being so amazing, um, it was absolutely spectacular. I just got the uh, the the time the uh, tapping on the watch signal. Um, oh, right. <laughs> so I I probably have to go. Yeah, um, no worries. That's absolutely <laughs> fine. We've had a, a lot of great stuff from you so i think it's been a brilliant conversation thank you so much for joining us for it right so i think now that we've said goodbye to christy we should probably say where people can find her so yeah could you point people in her direction kirsty yeah she's christy underscore caru on twitter and on tumblr she's enjoy all need nothing blog awesome and you should definitely check out her stuff she writes some magnificent meta like on the music of star wars and it's so great. Like it, it's on a level almost beyond what I can comprehend about music, but it's still so fascinating and wonderful to read. Um, yeah, I think the beauty of it is that it explains things that you can feel subconsciously in the music, but can't articulate yourself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like and when you read it, it really does come into focus so much more. And yeah, it's really fascinating. Um, yep. And then for me, you can find me at Star Wars Nonsense on Tumblr and at Journal of the Star Wars on WordPress. Where can people find you, Kirsty? I'm Basila Bay on Tumblr and Scavengers Horde on Twitter. Thank you so much for listening and until next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.